Radio Mano Papachango. Ladies and gentlemen, this will be the last episode that I, uh, I record here in Venice, California. We're leaving in a couple of days. Today's Friday. I think this will I'll post this Monday as usual. Um, so by the time you hear this, we will be in Tijuana. Beautiful Tijuana, Mexico. I've never been to Tijuana. In fact, until recently, I called it Tijuana. Tijuana. I thought it was Aunt Juana. But now that I'm preparing to go there and I'm looking for hotels and so on at, uh, what is it, tripadvisor.com, um, I see it's Tijuana. I've been adding an extra syllable all these years. And, and I thought I understood why. There was a whole narrative behind it, you know. I think that's what it's like to be crazy. You don't know you're crazy. Everything makes sense. Uh Casilda and I have talked about that quite a bit because she works with uh, psychotics. She loves working with psychotics. And, and she's explained that you can't, you can't talk a crazy person out of being crazy because within the crazy world that they're in, everything makes perfect sense. There's uh, an explanation for everything. So, of course, it's Tia Juana because it's, you know, someone's aunt Juana. Anyway, uh, yeah, we're going to Tijuana. Then uh, we're gonna we're gonna visit the Crossroads Treatment Center. Um, I spoke to uh, Martin and uh, Maria, who are uh, the director. Martin's the the founder and director. Back a couple of episodes. If you go into the archives, you'll see that episode. They're doing very important work using ibogaine to help um, addicts, particularly people who are addicted to opiates. And uh, so we want to go down and check that out. And then I think we're also going to visit another clinic in Tijuana that uses um, worms for therapy. It's called Helminth Therapy. And if you're a longtime listener of the podcast, you probably remember the episode I did uh, three or four months ago with uh, Mark Davis, who uh, does fecal transplants fecal transplant therapy, he put me in touch with this uh, company based in Tijuana who do uh, therapy with worms. And the idea behind that is that because we have eliminated uh, pathogens from our environment and from our bodies, pathogens that we evolved in the presence of, that now our immune system that's accustomed to dealing with a certain balance of uh, host and pathogen no longer has the pathogen. And so now the immune system is attacking the host itself. It's attacking its own body. Um, you know, it's kind of like send these guys over to Iraq and Afghanistan and make warriors of them and make them accustomed to seeing everyone around them as potentially dangerous, a lethal enemy. And we arm them to the teeth and we uh, train the compassion out of them as much as possible. And then when we're done with them over there or they cycle out, then they come back to the U.S. and they get jobs as cops and end up shooting people, which I guess we're seeing a lot of. I've ranted about this before, but it just occurs to me how that's essentially the, na the nation's immune system turning against itself. 
You know, when you, you have these vets who you teach to kill, they're like white blood cells. They go out and they eliminate enemies. But then when they return, either because there are no enemies, although on a foreign policy level, of course, we keep creating new enemies. Got to have more enemies, right? To keep the uh, military industrial complex humming along. Um, but in any case, they come back and they're trained to look and kill, look for and kill, eliminate enemies. And so if there are no enemies because they're living in a fucking suburb somewhere, a lot of these guys will find enemies. They'll create enemies. They'll imagine enemies. And you're not going to talk them out of it because to them it all makes sense. It's a form of craziness. Anyway, I don't mean to get into another gun thing or uh, piss everybody off with that. Thank you for your uh, responses about the whole mono stereo issue that I raised last week. I think we're going to stay with mono. A lot of interesting, you know, people, one complaint was like, I I don't want to download a file size twice as big as this. I've got the stuff in my phone. I've got other podcasts that would take up too much space. So that's true. The other thing is, I had never thought of this, but several people wrote to say, look, I listen to the podcast at work, um, but I can only have one earpiece in because I have to hear if my phone rings or my colleagues come and ask me something or whatever. So if uh, if you do it in stereo, I'm only going to hear half the podcast. So that's that's a pretty important consideration. So what I'm going to do is leave this in mono and... Uh, just do the uh, the Soma episodes where I'm really focused on the music. I'll do those in stereo because they tend to be shorter episodes anyway, so the file size won't be prohibitive. But thank you all for your feedback on that. It's very helpful. Now, you guys have listened to me ranting and raving about Civilized to Death far, far too long probably <laughs> for, for some of you. But uh, I was reading a, an interesting article in The New Yorker the other day by Rafi Cut. Chadorian, I think is how it's pronounced. It's called the Doomsday Invention. Will Artificial Intelligence Bring Us Utopia or Destruction is the subtitle. It's a very interesting article about artificial intelligence and whether we should be alarmed or if if the alarm is just a far-fetched silliness and there are people on both sides of the argument. Um, But I'll read a little bit of of the article just to give you a, a sense of what I'm talking about here. Um, he, Rafi, I assume is a man, I don't know. Um, the author is talking about a book called Superintelligence, Paths, Dangers, Strategies, that argues that true artificial intelligence may pose a danger that exceeds every previous threat from technology, even nuclear weapons, and that if its development is not managed carefully, humanity risks engineering its own extinction. Central to this concern is the prospect of an intelligence explosion, a speculative event in which an AI, an artificial intelligence, gains the ability to improve itself and in short order exceeds the intelligence potential of the human brain by many orders of magnitude. Such a system would effectively be a new kind of life. And these fears, in their simplest form, are evolutionary, are evolutionary that humanity will unexpectedly become outmatched by a smarter competitor. Um, And then a little later, he says, if evolution, if artificial intelligence can be achieved, 
it would be an event of unparalleled consequence, perhaps even a rupture in the fabric of history. So that's pretty big stuff, right? That's a, that's a major concern, a rupture in the fabric of history. My God. Uh, but I think now this is one of these ideas where, you know, I, uh, I had the same sort of feeling with Sex at Dawn where I, I had an epiphany and then I thought, well, either I'm right about this and it's fucking wild and kind of maybe slightly brilliant or the idea is brilliant, not me, by the way, um, or I'm completely full of shit and this is ridiculous, which is more likely. Um, but in this case, the the idea that's giving me that frisson is... Um, this idea that we have already created an artificial intelligence that is dominating us, that it that is enslaving us, and that is evolutionary, that humanity has already become outmatched by a smarter competitor. And so while this article is arguing, you know, sort of looking at both sides, whether these concerns are warranted or whether they're completely speculative and ridiculous and it'll take a million years before anything like this could ever possibly happen. That's the debate going on in the article. I'm reading it thinking it's already happened. It's already happened. Look around you. How would you recognize this superior intelligence that had enslaved the human race? How would you recognize it? You would recognize it because it was doing things that human beings don't want done and yet are participating in against their will, as it were. That's how you would recognize it, right? That people are doing things that are against the interest of people. Now, some people would say, well, they're against the interests of most people, but they're not against the interests of the ruling class, and those are the ones who are doing it, the ones who run the companies and all that kind of stuff. But the people who run the companies are miserable just like the rest of us. And if the people who ran the companies decided to stop doing these things, drilling for oil in the Amazon and dumping all the fucking chemicals into these pristine jungle rivers and destroying everything and giving kids cancer. If they decide to stop drilling in the Pacific Ocean because they realize that they don't have the technology to guarantee that they're not going to destroy an entire ecosystem. If they decide that fracking, pumping toxic chemicals with th that aren't even publicly available, we don't even know what these chemicals are. We just know they're toxic and the companies refuse to release information exactly what it is that they're pumping into the aquifer. The aquifer, the, the rivers that run under the land that all of us drink from, that every living thing on this planet drinks from, they're pumping toxic chemicals into that in order to push up some methane bubbles and get some natural gas. If they decide to stop doing that, if the guy who runs the, that company or those companies decides to stop doing that, he will be fired immediately. So to say that it's the rich who are fucking over the poor misses the point because the rich could decide to stop and yet the process would not stop. The owners of those companies could decide to stop and it would not stop. The company would be sold to someone else who would continue because the profit margin is what drives it, not the intention of people who happen to work there or who happen to own shares in that company. 
So that's that's the insight. That's the the thing that I think is sort of revolutionary. And it's the thing that nobody really seems to see. I mean, I'm sure there are other people who who have argued this, but um, as I'm talking about it and writing about it, I don't I don't really see a lot of discussion about this. So the challenge of the book is is to talk about these things without sounding crazy. Um, so if I sound crazy to you, let me know. <laughs> <laughs> because because that's a good sign that, you know, maybe I'm the crazy one. It all makes sense to me because I'm the lunatic. Uh, here's another line from the, the uh, th- this is from this article. They're talking about Oppenheimer, who uh, was working on the nuclear bomb. And uh, he famously said, when you see something that is technically sweet, you go ahead and do it. And you argue about what to do about it only after you have had your technical success. So think about that. He's talking, this is one of the guys who put together a nuclear bomb. And he said, it's when you see something that's technically sweet, you do it. And then later you can talk about what it all means and whether you should have done it. But you do it because it's technically sweet. That's his phrase, technically sweet. That's the key to the dominance of institutions, which I am seeing as this superior life form. Superior only in the sense that it's outsmarted us and it lives longer than us. Think how long the Catholic Church has lived and survived and gotten richer and spread and exercised control, dominated, enslaved, destroyed cultures. Um, think of Exxon, think of these institutions that will live longer than you and me and have far more resources and have teams of lawyers and have armies of, of uh, literal armies at their behest. The American army is working for corporations just like most armies are. They're, they're another life form and they live on another dimension that uh, supersedes the dimension that you and I live on. So maybe that sounds crazy. Maybe that sounds interesting. Maybe it, it makes sense of things that otherwise don't make any sense. Why are we doing this to ourselves? Why are we doing this to our planet? I think we're doing it because we're sucked into a system that we don't understand and we are enslaved by beings whose sophistication allows them to exist right in front of us and get us to do things that are good for them and bad for us. Because we chase the sweetness, the technological sweetness if you're a scientist, the economic financial sweetness if you're a money guy. You do the deal. Why? Because the deal works. The deal makes sense. I saw The Big Short recently. It's an amazing movie. I encourage you to see it. And then at the end of it, why aren't people in the streets? Why isn't there blood flowing in the streets? We have been ripped off, destroyed, pensions of... Millions of retirees gutted. Why? Because it worked. It made money for your company. For Goldman Sachs, it made money. There's a way that you can take these risks, and if the risks pay off, your company gets all the money. If the risk doesn't pay off, the taxpayers cover it. Who's not going to do that? If you look at that and you're a moral, ethical person who somehow ended up on Wall Street, which already is very far-fetched, but if you happen to be there, you happen to be the guy, and you see that that's the way it works, and you say, but this isn't right. I can't do this. What's going to happen? 
you're going to be fired. Or if not, you'll quit. You will be eliminated from that situation because you're not willing to do the things that are demanded by the situation. That's the key. That's the point I I hope you hear and I hope I can communicate. It's the situation that is in control, not you, not whomever is, is functioning within that situation. So there's this illusion that we make ethical decisions where, in fact, in many situations, there is no ethical decision. Because if you're working at Goldman Sachs, what are you going to do? You're going to do the deal and fuck people over, or you're going to quit and someone else is going to do the deal and fuck people over. But either way, that deal's going to get done. So we're headed for Mexico. We're going to go down to the capital probably. Um, and now, just last night, I had dinner with uh, Dr. Dan Engel, who um, is a psychiatrist who also works with Ibogaine and, and other hallucinogens in uh, a clinical capacity. Uh, recorded a podcast with him that'll be coming soon. Uh, and he just got back from Cuba and he was telling us how great Cuba was. And so I'm thinking, hmm, maybe we'll fly over to Cuba, see what that's like. So I, I don't know. We're I'm investigating that. I don't want to do a tourist thing um, but I know some people who've spent a lot of time there. So if we can hook up with a family and have a more sort of uh, direct experience, maybe we'll go over there. Um, certainly not if it breaks any laws, if anyone's listening to this with that sort of intent. Never. Would never break a law. Um, and then uh, Thailand and then Africa. So we'll be in Africa for a while. And I hope to be recording interesting conversations with the people we meet along the way. And then uh, back in Spain in April or so. This is a song uh, by a guy that I I met in Spain. He grew up in Africa, or sorry, in um, Barcelona and Brazil. He's a Catalan guy who I guess moved to Brazil at some point, and or one of his parents were Brazilian. I'm not sure, but he's. Um, Spanish, Brazilian, sort of sings in both languages. You'll hear interesting influences. His name's Wagner Pa, P-A. The song is called Folia.
Dime con cuántos palos haces la canoa. Dímalo. Dime con cuántas verdades me vas a engañar. Dime que estás aquí. Dime que estás por llegar. Con tu guía y tu canoa en las olas del mar. Dame lo que tú tienes para mí. Dame la alegría y un poquito de ti. Dame por mi bien, dame que te da igual. Dame la sintonía del carnaval. Si ha ido la feria o oh ves, si ha ido la fiesta o oh vas, si ha ido la folia también. Y ya no tengo nada para dar. Si ha ido la feria o oh ves, si ha ido la fiesta o oh vas, si ha ido la folia también. Y ya no tengo nada para dar. put a link to that song at chrisryanphd.com so you can get yourself a copy if you'd like. Support Wagner. Um, this week's episode, speaking of supporting, is with a photographer that uh, I met through the podcast. Actually, when I moved, first moved to Portland, I got some emails from various people who listened to the podcast and were like, oh, dude, you're in Portland. Let's get together. Um, and this uh, this particular gentleman, Shane Gardner, uh, was inviting me to strip clubs. And he was like, dude, you're in Portland. Let me show you around to some of the best strip clubs. And so my first impression was like, yeah, I don't I don't really need to be hitting strip clubs in Portland, you know, right away. <laughs> if ever. I'm not a big strip club guy. Uh, I, I don't really get. I, I just, I, I mean, I don't know. I don't get it. Like, you're in this place with all these hot women who don't really give a fuck about you but might pretend to uh, if you give them money, but then, like, you're not allowed to touch them. And so you, I don't, I, I mean, I just, the whole thing just seems too contrived and weird for me. So it's not a, a scene that I've spent a lot of time in. In Spain, it's a little different. Uh, a little wilder and uh, less regulated, for better or worse. And I had a friend who was a bouncer in a strip club, so I used to go there sometimes. We always got in free. and um, But, uh, yeah, that was about it for me. But uh, anyway, so this guy, Shane, kept inviting me to, to go out strip clubs. And finally one day, a couple months in, I was bored. I was working, and he suggested we meet for lunch at a place that was right near where I was. And... I was like, all right, what the fuck? And I went out, and I was thinking, you know, this guy's going to be kind of a sleazy, you know, middle-aged dude, whatever. Turns out he's this real sweet, smart guy. Um, 
and his girlfriend's a stripper. And so she was working and he was just hanging out, you know, with her. And the whole strip club scene in Portland is completely unlike what I expected. It's it's if you've ever been to if you if you ever go to Portland, go to a strip club. I know. I mean, now I sound like the sleazy middle aged guy. I am the sleazy middle aged guy, by the way. But still, it's like the least sleazy place in the city. It, the, these strip clubs, they have the food is really good. It's cheap. The drinks are cheap. The women are really nice and smart and and funny and like it's not like a victim scene, you know, that that's what I was imagining, that it was, you know, oppression, a scene of oppression. But it isn't, uh, at least the places that I went to. I think we went to the Lucky Devil on Powell Street. And uh, and now I have a friend who works there, actually, or at least she was when we left Portland. In any case, uh, there's like a fireplace, and 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 it's completely chill. And there were some dudes sitting at a table just talking, and you know they weren't even really paying attention to the stripper. So if you're like if you go up to the stage, then you're expected to give some you know a few ones or some money or whatever. But you can also just sit at a table and chat with your buddies or your you know your wife or whatever. There were women in there. It, it, it's it's a non sleazy situation, so that surprised me. Um, and Shane and I got to be friends, and it turns out that Shane is an extraordinarily talented photographer. And he is uh, he's, he's sort of obsessed with the female nude in nature. And so that's what he does. He takes pictures of women in naked in natural settings where the woman's body is an element of the landscape. And again, not sleazy. This whole episode is about the absence of sleaze. And uh, and Shane is a very, very talented guy. And what I love about his photographs is that they they make explicit something that I've always felt and that really informs a lot of the way I look at the world, which is that when I look at a, a woman, I get the same sort of pleasure that I get when I look at a sunset or a rainbow or a mountain or a waterfall. There is a feeling of synchronicity, of resonance between what I'm seeing out there in the world and what already exists on some other dimension within me. There's some recognition and... and yeah, resonance, I guess, is the best way to say it. And so I've used that metaphor to try to explain to women over the years, like, you know, don't expect me not to look at other women in the street. That's just not going to happen. Like, at most, you could maybe, in my younger days, get me to pretend I wasn't noticing them. But now, at this point, I'm a lost cause. I'm not even going to pretend anymore. Because to me, it makes as much sense as telling me not to look at sunsets and not to look at the full moon and not to look at the stars. Like, are you kidding me? The the one thing we have is the capacity to appreciate beauty. That is the, the greatest gift that we have with these big neocortexes of ours. And you're telling me not to do that. That's a deal breaker. So uh, Shane's work really makes that explicit. And, and he does it in a way with a, a dedication to artistry and the dignity of the women that he's, he's working with. 
and uh, and just a, a real appreciation for what beauty really is. And um, yeah, that's that's pretty much all I want to say. I've already this this rant, this intro has gone on longer than most, so I'll end it there. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Shane Gardner. Uh, And I hope you'll follow him on Instagram or his blog or Facebook or wherever it is that he's he's publishing his stuff because he you know, he he gets problems with Instagram. He has to cover nipples and do all this stupid bullshit, this high school bullshit that corporate America demands Uh, or he's he's at risk of losing his entire account because there's a fucking nipple showing, you know, my God, when when are we going to grow up? Anyway, uh, Shane Gardner, William Shane Gardner or Shane William Gardner. I don't know. He'll he'll tell you what the fuck his name is. He, he's one of these people with three names. I got to say three names. That's that's pushing it. OK, two names is enough. You know, Neil deGrasse Tyson. Why do you need three names? Neil Tyson. That's it. That's all you get. Yeah. All right. That's it. Oh, did I tell you I won the porn award? I think I mentioned that last week. Anyway, I won the porn award. I won the Oscar for best non-sex performance. So that's going on my resume. I might not use three names, but I do slip that PhD in there. Uh-huh. That's right. I saw Duncan Trussell now. His Twitter handle is Duncan Trussell PhD. I think that is directly aimed at me. Duncan, you're not a doctor. Neither am I. Hope you enjoy this conversation, and I hope you will check out some of Shane's work. By the way, uh, Hester, Hester, <laughs> Heather, sorry, Heather, Heather, uh, who was on the podcast two or three episodes ago, modeled for Shane. So there's a meeting of the worlds here. You can uh, you can check her out in her natural state uh, through Shane's lens. Thanks for listening. I will talk to you next time from down Mexico way. Andale. All right, ladies and gentlemen, I'm here with Shane Gardner, also known as The Things I've Seen. The Things I've Seen. The Things I've Seen.com. But what's most interesting uh, about Shane, from my perspective, is not the things he's seen, but the people he's seen. Shane has an amazing talent for um, convincing beautiful women to take their clothes off. How the hell does one do that? Let's start. With, at the heart of all this, Shane is a. Do you, I, I don't know what to describe you as. Whether you're a, a nude art photographer or a landscape photographer who happens to include lovely naked women in the landscapes. I've always wondered that myself. No. Sometimes people even told me that I'm a um, a therapist mm. because of the people that I attract and some of the stories. Really. Um, that they have to share. Yeah, well, and you're really, um, you're very good at at retelling those stories. One of the things I enjoy most on your Instagram account is the stories that you tell about how a photograph came to be, who this person is, the kind of stuff that was happening that day in your life. And I, I think it was just this morning I read one um, the woman like had a bodyguard and a yeah. driver, and and they kept knocking on the door every ten minutes to make sure she was all right. And she was a traveling lingerie model. Like, yeah, what, what yeah. the fuck? I still don't know what that means. Yeah, it's been six years or so, and I still don't know <laughs> what it means. But it's cool because you sort of, at least judging by the stories I've read, you, um, 
you know, you meet someone online or you you run into them at the mall or whatever it is and, and you give them your card and say, check out my website, and they do, and they love your style, and then they want to model for you, but you still don't really know the people. Right. But suddenly you have this really intimate relationship with them, and you get glimpses into, like, the 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 sort of the secret parts of their lives. And I'm not talking about their bodies. I'm talking about uh, you get these weird angles on people's lives that's really fascinating. Yeah, they, they relate to... They see something in the photos, they relate to it, and they feel like they have... They can tell a story... They have a story to tell as well, right. based on what they've seen. They say, I, you know, I can, I can relate to what I'm seeing in these photographs. I want to tell that story too. They contact me, and... It just happens. I don't know. I, I, I don't know how to explain it. How did it start? How did I start taking photos? Or yeah, you were doing commercial work before. Well, not really. There was even before that, around twenty years ago or so. I was. I wanted to write and direct movies, mm. and uh, I didn't have a budget. You know, I'm eighteen, nineteen years old. Uh, don't have a budget. Don't have any friends who can act. And it's really frustrating. You're fucked, man. <laughs> so I'm sitting around one day with, with a friend of mine, and uh, we're just watching a movie, and I'm, I'm thinking in the back of my mind, maybe I'll just start taking photos. And whatever I learn through photography, sometime in the future I will be able to apply to writing and directing movies. And then I thought, well, for reaction purposes, I turn to my friend and I say, I'm going to buy a camera, and I'm going to take pictures of naked people. She laughed and said, if you ever had your act together and could even afford a camera, I'd model nude for you. Wow. Not knowing that I did have a few dollars saved, I drove 45 <laughs> miles to the nearest Best Buy the next day, bought a camera, showed up that night at her door with camera in hand, and she stayed true to her word. That nice. Night, my very first photo shoot ever was a nude girlfriend. My girlfriend nude, so... Uh, that's where it all started, and then for the next 10 years or so, I didn't really know what to do. I never took a class. I, I would just hang out with friends at coffee shops and photograph them doing whatever, but I had no focus, no direction. Were you shooting film? Film, yeah. Do you still shoot film? Or you, I don't. You... I, I reluctantly converted to digital six years ago, seven mm. years ago. Um, I've, I've been digital since then. And it's odd, a lot of people can't even tell the difference between what few photos I still have in my portfolio that are film right. and which ones are digital. I've had people who claim to be professional photographers come to gallery shows that I've had and look at the stuff in the walls and think it's all film really? when it was all digital. I, right. I don't know the first thing about cameras or the technique, technical stuff. I, I just know what I know. Like I said, I've never had a class for photography and I just know what I know to get by. I don't do anything with Photoshop. I think that's another thing that a lot of people are really drawn to. Uh, you would think that would scare a lot of people away, that, oh, he doesn't use Photoshop. Well, everybody's in, got these insecurities and everything. Right. They expect them to be Photoshopped out and glossed over and everything, but I don't really use Photoshop. I don't even know how to use Photoshop. And it's, I think, how, how, do, how do people... Why are people drawn to shoot with me? I think it's uh, honesty. I think mm. I, I just present an honest photograph. and, and Honest but not unartful. And they're very right. artful. They're very carefully posed and framed. And 
I mean, do you always shoot black and white? Always shoot black and white. Right. Yeah, a lot of people are confused by that, too. They expect me to shoot in color and then change it to black and white just in case I want a color photograph of it. So I just, I'd, I'd rather just shoot it straight black and white. Hmm. Maybe that's why they can't tell the, the difference between film. Because I think when you convert from color, you get a harshness that, yeah. that you probably don't get if you shoot straight. I, I'm no expert on photography at all, but certainly not digital. I, I used to dabble in photography. My, the high point of my photographic career was I um, won a, a national uh, competition with Rand McNally, and my photograph was on that photograph, actually, which our listeners can't see, but it's on, I think, I don't know if I have it on my website. I probably don't, but it's a woman uh, in Guatemala, in Antigua, Guatemala, standing in front of a, a an old wall where the paint's all... They paint different colors on top of each other, so when the, it starts to disintegrate, you get all these nice textures. Um, anyway, yeah, that, that was probably the high point of my career. I was shooting on Kodachrome 64 when I was traveling in sort of a National Geographic thing. And then I took... When I moved back to New York after my first trip in Asia, I took uh, photography classes from this... From the National Geographic Center, they, they had uh, staff photographers who would give each week would be a different photographer. And, and um, man, I remember some amazing stuff. There was one guy who was a photojournalist, and his whole thing was about how, as a photojournalist, you are there to record, you're not there to, to be involved. And this guy had, like, I mean, he, he told a story about living with a family in, I think it was Rwanda. Um, or Rhodesia, maybe it was Rhodesia, because this was a while, this was the late 80s, early 90s probably. Um, and this family had like taken him in, and then whatever the war was came to that village, and the rebels like saw he was a white guy, so they let him go, but they pulled this family out and lined them up against the wall, and this guy took pictures while they were ex executed. Huh. And there was all this, you know, everybody was like, well, how could you not do something how could you not and he was like well, you know I, I'm there I'm the eyes of the world that's all I am yeah. when I'm working and he said if he were walking down the alley and because someone asked him in the class like well, what if you were walking down an alley and you saw a woman getting raped wouldn't you intervene he said I would intervene if I didn't have my camera if I had my camera I would just record it Intense. Yeah. Anyway, I'm I'm rambling, but the the reason I'm talking about that was another one of the another one of the teachers we went out for drinks afterwards, and um, and he said, and he was sort of like off the clock, you know, and he said, "Listen, guys, uh, you know, don't ever say I told you this, but you don't want to be a photographer. You don't want to do this. I'm at the top. I'm I'm a staff." National Geographic photographer. I'm 45 years old. I spend 200 days a year on the road, and I make $70,000. It's a giant pain in the ass. It'll never get better. And, and digital's coming in, and this is all going to be over in five years. And he was right. But enough about me. <laughs> See, I told you you don't have yeah. to be nervous. I'll just right. talk. I'll all just right. yak and yak. That's... Um, what the hell are we talking about? Uh, we were talking about uh, how I started taking photos. Yeah, yeah. So, and you, so your ex-girlfriend, who you had already seen naked. So yeah. this wasn't about getting a woman naked. 
Right. You could right. get her naked without a camera, mm-hmm. but what yeah. the hell? So, um, okay, so people are going to see your photographs, and the, you know, any man under 35 is going to be like, dude, wow, how do you focus? How do you, I mean, literally you focus. Because they are, they're not erotic. I, I, I mean, they are erotic in a way. Because um, they're, they're, you capture the beauty of women's bodies really, really nicely. Um, but they're not, uh, they're not overtly sexual at all. They're very right. tasteful. I think that's probably something that women recognize as well, that you get the physical beauty, but you're not slimy at all. Right. Yeah. yeah. And that's a hard line. Did you, you ever find yourself losing that line? No. No, not really. Um, it, it, it was pretty, it was, it was clear to me early on that that wasn't the angle I was looking for. The uh, sexual angle. Yeah, the sexual angle. Uh, it was hard, I guess, in a sense to overcome that when for the first several years that I had a camera, my subjects were all girlfriends and I just... I guess it did just kind of gravitate towards that. They didn't really recognize a vision that I had. I didn't recognize a vision. I hadn't built a portfolio yet. Uh, right. I wasn't brave enough to go out in the streets or in nature and photograph people there. So it, it was kind of confined to a bedroom. And when you naturally confine nude photos to a bedroom, I think there is a certain sense of overt sexuality that's going to come out through the photos in, in those cases. Right, and especially if you're photographing people you have a sexual relationship with. So there's that energy is already yeah, there. Yeah, right? absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. But then, oddly enough, just, you know, with uh, just mentioning sexual energy and everything, where I found out that I had this voice, where I started developing this style of the black and whites and the nudes on the streets and in nature and everything, was when I met this uh, girl who, six months and two days after I met her, we got married, and it was a firestorm. It's like the, the Johnny Cash song, Ring of Fire. Uh, just everything happened all at once, and uh, next thing you know, we were married. And she recognized this vision that I had. She could see it, and she wasn't a model, but she was certainly able to be a model if she chose to be, uh, but she wasn't. And she said, I will model for you. I'll, I'll Anytime, anywhere, uh, I'll beer muse so I, I learned a lot just being married to her for the first two years of our marriage and that's where I at that point that's where I really started developing the black and white style and aesthetic that I have now and after a couple of years of photographing her then I started discovering these online networking communities one model place and model mayhem are the two most popular ones and I started posting pictures on there and that's where I, I guess that was the genesis of everything now was just her allowing me, facilitating me to find this vision, this voice. And then oddly enough, she propelled it even further a couple of years later when we divorced. And it was, as most divorces are, not the prettiest of um, separations, but those first couple months after we separated, I was kind of in a downward spiral and didn't know where to go in life anymore. And uh, 
just trying to rediscover myself. And just to maintain sanity, I started photographing constantly. Mm. And my, my typical week, this is, a, this is um, beginning of 2009 uh, when her and I separated. And a typical week for me for the next year and a half would be going to my 9 to 5 job. I worked for a law firm. Going to my 9 to 5 job Monday through Friday, coming home at night, sitting in my dark room, listening to my sad songs, uh, editing photos, and networking with models around the Midwest. And then the weekend, I would be anywhere in Milwaukee, Chicago, Madison, anywhere within like a 300-mile range, uh, meeting up with all these people. And it wasn't uncommon for me to be shooting five or six different people on a weekend. And maybe I would drive down to Chicago Friday night, meet with somebody to discuss photos, check into a hotel, wake up at 4 o'clock in the morning, pick anywhere from one to three girls up uh, around Chicago, photograph them in the streets, drop them off by noon, pick somebody else up, go photograph in some abandoned areas outside of Chicago, drop them off, drive 120 miles to Madison, meet somebody, discuss some photo shoots, maybe hang out with some friends, and um, then I would shoot with them. And you're not making money. any money from this? No, I, I've never made money. I don't charge money. I don't make money. I try to keep money completely out of it, uh, just to keep it honest. You know, maybe an artist mentality or whatever. But I find that people who are motivated by money, they don't really bring the emotion to the table. And they're also very experienced. And they'll bring a lot of structured poses and everything. When, when And I need, I need people who are more pliable and moldable and when you see my photos you know hopefully you recognize it that um, I, I take people out into nature and I try to blend them in to their environment and if I've got somebody who falls into these structured poses that they've done all the time they've made a living doing it doesn't look natural right and I, I prefer to work with people who have no experience I'd say half my photos are people who had zero experience as a model or a new art nude model prior to shooting with me. And then when you see a hole in the tree, you know, they're, they're, they're just, they're more pliable. They, they can... Uh... To what extent are you directing them as opposed to them just sort of molding themselves? My first direction to everybody, and I do this uh, kind of tongue-in-cheek, but it, my first direction is to tell them, act how you would act if you were alone and naked in this environment whatever that be, in the middle of the woods, on the beach, you know, wherever. Um, act how you would act if you were alone and naked in this environment. And they'll say, well, what are you talking about? I would never <laughs> be alone naked in this environment. And then I say, you know, it's not, about, it's not, it's not even making it about the photos right now. The cameras yeah. are still in the bag. I can go around the corner, right. just feel what it's like. Most people have never felt that before. Uh. They don't know what that feels like. And every time, every time, within very short you know, five minutes or so, everybody realizes how amazing this feeling is. They're completely comfortable, and they're, they're already comfortable with me. Sometimes, you know, I pick somebody up, and we travel two hours just to get to a spot to shoot, and you, you can learn a lot about somebody in the car for two hours. Um, so now they're acclimated, they're comfortable, and then the next thing, for the best results I found, um, is... 
to just let people be, let them explore their, you know, like I said, they're comfortable with me now. So they're just climbing a tree or they're climbing over some rocks and everything. I'm just kind of observing. Mm. And I'm factoring in light, all these other different things, uh, all these different uh, situations. And when I see them naturally interacting with their environment, just like climbing up a rock or going around a tree or something, I said, hold on, hold on, hold, let's, let's freeze that, let's work with that, and then I will slightly mold them and everything to, mm. uh, you know, say put an arm over here, put a leg over here, and then that, that the results yield uh, them blending into nature because it's born from them doing what they would naturally do in right. their environment, as opposed to going out there with preconceived notions, ideas, what you're going to get, right. have people pose in typical poses and structures and everything, and just take pictures for the sake of taking a picture of a naked girl. I don't do that. Yeah. It's... Yeah, you're, uh, I mean, I'm just thinking as you're talking, I'm sort of flashing on, on images of yours that are um, sort of burned into my memory. There's one, uh, it, it, people shouldn't get the idea that you're talking about you know, taking someone out on a warm beach. Yeah. You know, th some of these people are posing in ice. They're posing in snow. They're on cold uh, city streets and Times Square at 3 o'clock in the morning. Yep. There's a gorilla component to, to what you're doing as well, mm -hmm. and especially the urban shots. There's another one in Chicago. I remember women in the street and, like, some car came... <laughs> flying down there two minutes after you stopped or something. And yep. there are all these amazing... It's really, you know, I'm sure you've heard this before, but your work reminds me a little bit of... Um, uh, what is it called? Humans of New York. Have you? Do you know about this series? No, I don't. Oh, you don't know the series? No. You should definitely follow them on Instagram. Everybody, humans of New York. It's, it's really a, a beautiful thing. It's a guy in New York who started just taking pictures of people in the street and like you say, a camera is an interesting way to get into someone's life. And uh, he just, um, you know, would talk with them. Uh, and and what he found, you, you, and his photographs aren't artistic the way yours are. They're just a picture of somebody that he met on the street, sitting on a park bench, standing in front of the store, whatever. Um, but then there's a little story of who they are and what they said. And and it's just incredible the stories that these people have you know they're mm -hmm. about nursing their dying mother about how their husband got cancer and died a year ago or or they're they're not always sad they're sometimes they're happy and beautiful but they're just like there's this photograph and then there's a paragraph and the two of them together are like an express elevator into this person's soul you know it's really revealing and beautiful um, and then he just, it, it was a huge bestseller. It, uh, he self-published it, you know, it was mm -hmm. just a guy taking it. And it became this huge thing. And then he um, just published uh, a follow-up called Stories of New York. And it's more focused on the text than the photos. The first one was more the yeah. photo. Um, but anyway, your stuff is like that. And I've encouraged you, I think, on Instagram or email or something, yeah. that you should think about doing something like that because you really... Your stories are fantastic. Um, it reminds me, again, you know, there's a, a photographer who died a few years ago, Galen Rowell. You ever heard of him? Mm -hmm. He's a landscape photographer and uh, a world-class mountain climber. And um, 
he had a book called Mountain Light that I just loved. It's a large format book, and one page is a photograph, and on the other page is the story of that photograph. That's been my motivation. That's yeah. something I've wanted to do for years. It's great. And, and I mean, and his was really great for me as a photographer because he also tells you the technical stuff. You know, like, okay, I knew to get this angle. And, then, and actually, you've probably seen one of his most famous photographs is uh, a rainbow that goes into the Potala Palace in Tibet. This It's a very famous. Similar. It was like on the cover of National Geographic and everything. Um, but it's great because it's like, oh, here's the lens, here's the, the f-stop shutter speed, the camera I used, the film I was using. Um, and, and he, you know, I had to get up at 4 o'clock in the morning to make sure I was there when this happened. But then the shutter froze, so I had a backup camera and I had to hold it in my pants. And, you know, this is whole story. Mm-hmm. And in his mostly there landscape, there aren't a lot of people that appear in them. But it makes it such a rich experience to, to look at an image and read the story of how it came to be. It's great. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, anyway, so I was saying your, your people shouldn't get the idea that your models are necessarily comfortable. Uh, now the coldest I've ever shot is 12 degrees. Because you're shooting in like, I mean, I remember one, there's a woman like under an ice shelf, like on one of the Great yeah. Lakes or something. Yeah, Toledo, Ohio. Toledo. Uh, Lake Ohio. Erie. Yeah. That was in mid-March. And there's, the, the lake was frozen, but then I guess the waves at some point over the lake were pushing this ice sheet and elevating it. So you're sailing on the shore, and you can see the lake coming in underneath this sheet of ice. <laughs> and, and I see this, and I said, all right, I need you to lie underneath this sheet of ice. And she looks at it, and she says, yeah, right when hell freezes over. And I said, <laughs> Literally. Well, now you got to do it because you just... Gave the name. Tell you what, the perfect name. Toledo in Toledo, Ohio, in March is hell frozen over. As yes, far it as is. I'm concerned. Oh, Toledo is hell frozen over <laughs> any time of year. <laughs> I said Toledo because in Spain the original Toledo is Toledo, which is this beautiful, beautiful town just outside of Madrid. It's funny, Toledo. Um, did you know that woman, or was that just a? I met her the day, day before. Uh-huh. Uh, we, we had been, as with most people, uh, well, it's kind of getting ahead of things, but in 2011, a year and a half after uh, my wife and I separated and ultimately got divorced, and I'd been shooting all over the Midwest, I just got to the point where I felt like I couldn't say anything else that I wanted to say or needed to say in the Midwest. So in September of 2010, I reassessed everything. I said, what, what do I, what am I, what is the most important things to me? And I said, my photography and traveling. And I'm, I'm photographing, but I'm not traveling. So I stopped photographing for the next six months from the end of 2010 into 2011 and decided that I was going to start traveling the country. And so around January or so, through this networking website, Model Mayhem, I started posting travel notices and reaching out to models who've expressed interest in shooting with me over the years or, you know, whatever. I was state by state. I kind of plotted this route that I was going to go. And I started sending out feelers and emails and whatnot and just generating interest from, general interest from people. And on March 13th, 2011, I quit my job, sold everything I owned, uh, vacated my apartment, and moved into my car, 2006 Hyundai Elantra. 
which I'm 6'1", and it's, it's a small car. There's no way to configure that for me to yeah. sleep in there. But there was many nights on the road that I, I slept in my car. And my first stop was Toledo, Ohio. It was a six-and-a-half-hour drive, I think it was. And got there, slept in my car, woke up the next morning, and 5 o'clock in the morning, picked this girl up at her house, and we spent 12 hours wandering around Toledo and everywhere within a 50-mile radius of Toledo taking pictures. And that, that, that was, I guess, day one, day two of, of my road trip. But I ended up living on the road for eight, nine months, I think. In that same car? In that same car, which I still have. It's got really? <laughs> 203,000 miles on it now, and just had transmission work done on it yesterday, uh, and it still runs great. Oh, that's right, yeah. Uh, we were we were trying to schedule a thing yesterday, and you said your car was in the shop. Wow, yeah. that one. Yeah, so, so when, when I had left Wisconsin in preparation for this road trip, it was part, I guess photography is what, my, my photos, my art is what, allowed me to go out in the road and gave me something to do out there. Um, not that there's nothing to do, but I was for years, 15 years or so, working in dead-end office jobs and had debts and had filed for bankruptcy and just I wasn't going anywhere and I, I just, just decided to break that. And How old are you now? Just turned 40 in September. So this, so a lot of this sort of reassessment and and came, breaking out was in your thirties. Yeah, it came way too late in life to be honest. I mean, be- better late than never. But well, you got to develop a rut before you can get out of one. I guess. Right? I guess. Yeah. And I, when you're in your twenties, like you know, yeah, I never would have been able to do this sooner. Yeah. You know, I didn't. You know, it was the photography and just. But when I, when I left Wisconsin, I had 140 people uh, expressing interest in shooting with me when I got to them, and. Uh, that was, I, I'd left Wisconsin, I'd gone east towards upstate New York, and from upstate New York, I went into Canada, spent two and a half weeks in Canada. I took a car ferry out to Newfoundland with a model who had, uh, was aware of my stuff through Model Mayhem and sent me this email and said, basically, it would be a dream come true that if you photographed me, in these sorts of environments and sent me pictures of fjords and oceans and all just mountains, mountainous areas and everything. And turns out it was pictures of Newfoundland. So I drove up into Canada. I wasn't planning to go to Canada, but I went up to Canada, drove to Toronto, met her. Two days later, she was in Montreal for a photo shoot with another photographer. So I picked her up in Montreal. Then we drove, I think it was like about 11 or 12 hours. So was she a professional model? She, yeah, she was. She still she gets paid. She's a traveling um, professional model, but art nude model. And her style always has been uh, very similar to mine. I guess mm. I, you know. I, I just said earlier that uh, the professional ones are the ones I kind of steer away from. Well, there are exceptions. Yeah, I mean, she you, was one. You of those had a exceptions. natural affinity for her. Yeah, yeah or her for you, I guess. Yeah. And then we, we, when I got out of Canada, I went all the way down the East Coast, stayed on a futon in my ex-wife's, now ex-wife's uh, apartment in Boston. She was studying at MIT to be an architect. 
and that's the first time I'd seen her in a couple of years. Kept going down the East Coast, got down to North Carolina, Savannah, Georgia area. Didn't want to touch Florida. Not a big fan of Florida. Then I started going west and bouncing up and down, zigzagging my way out west. Got to you went through the South. Yeah, through like the, Mississippi, you know, the South Mississippi, uh, New Orleans, Austin, Texas, uh, everywhere in between down there. Have you shot black women? I have, yes. On I don't a remember. Few occasions. There's, there's not. I've never shot with that many. Uh, they just don't seem to seek me out, and I guess through the channels that I had, the networking channels that I had, there just wasn't that. Right. Uh, it's not an aesthetic consideration or No, no, not, not at all. Not You're at not all. a closet racist. No, 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 I'm not. Okay, just got to make sure. Yeah, you of, know. Course, of course. And what about men? Twice. On the road, uh, on this 2011 road trip, uh, photographing a girl, and they were accompanied by their boyfriend, and one of them was in the mountains in uh, Georgia, and we were on this waterfall, and I'm just like fixing cameras, getting everything ready for a photo shoot with her, and I turn around, and there he is, completely naked on this waterfall, <laughs> saying you should take a picture of this. <laughs> All right. So I did. Love I... this. <laughs> Here, snap this. Well, he's standing in the middle of this waterfall. The water's <laughs> rushing on both sides of him. He just, I don't know how he got up there, but he's staying there wow. with his arms out like this. Wow. And it looked pretty good, so I, yeah, I took a picture. <laughs> and then a few... About a month and a half later, I was in Denver, Colorado, photographing with this girl and uh, stayed with her and her boyfriend for a couple days. Uh, but we were just shooting in Red Rocks, the, the uh, amphitheater. We, oh, we snuck really? into the amphitheater and we were shooting around in the rocks. Telluride? Is that around Telluride? Oh, that's right outside of Denver. Oh, okay. Red Rocks Amphitheater. Yeah. And he just said, you know, sometimes I getting some shots, too. And I said, well, all right, let's, let's go for it. Yeah. I had no problem. It's never been a focus of mine, but you know, when it comes up, so to speak. Uh, you ever have a model insist that you be naked? No. Hmm. No. Well, yeah. Yeah, I don't think they were serious, though. I never took them <laughs> seriously, at least. <laughs> so you don't think it would, it would uh, put them at ease to have you naked behind the camera? No. No, I don't, I don't think it would. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We'll let that go. <laughs> so, uh, you know, you said something that, that rang out to me earlier. You said uh, you felt like you'd said w what you had to say and you couldn't really say much more while you were in the Midwest. Yeah. So that makes me think what... What is it that was exhausted there? Is is it a certain kind of model that you're meeting, or was it the community? Because, I mean, there are innumerable scenes, you know, abandoned factories and waterfalls and forests, and, I mean, the Midwest is full of beautiful places, right? Right, right, absolutely. So what was it that was empty for you? Emotion. Um, a couple months after the separation, uh, from after my separation... I'm just shooting constantly, not thinking about anything. I'm running a gallery in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And I've got all my photos on the wall. And then my ex-wife calls me from Belarus. She's a Belarus native. She calls me from Belarus. I haven't talked to her in months. And she says she looked at my website and noticed two things. 
the photos, the aesthetic of the photos aren't the same as what they were when I was photographing her. When I was photographing her, I was taking portraits. It, it was not sensual, but it was just these portraits and her celebrating her beauty, her mm. na- just her natural beauty. And then when she left and I was just diving into photos just to maintain my sanity, and I wasn't aware of this until she mentioned it, she's, I don't see any faces. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. So you were shooting her face. Yeah. Right. Her face, her identity, um, her wearing different outfits and everything. They weren't even necessarily nudes, but it was just all about her. It wasn't about blending her in with environments and nature or anything like that. But then it, it took a turn, that uh, separation and divorce caused it subconsciously to take a turn. And I went back and I looked at all the stuff hanging on my walls in, the, in this gallery. And I said, you know, she's right, there are, there's no faces, what does that mean? And I studied it more and more, thought about it for a couple weeks, and realized it was almost like self-portraiture that mm. I'd begun to take. And I was removing people's identities so that I could maybe relate to it more, taking away their identity and imposing mine onto them. And the poses had become very vulnerable and drawn in. And the locations, isolation, abandonment, I was shooting a lot of abandoned areas, or even if you're out in nature, you're just a small person Mm. out in this big world. And I realized it was self-portraiture. It was me projecting this loss, this uncertainty of where I'm going next and where my place in the world is after going through this divorce. And when I realized that, I thought, wow, if this is an art, then I don't know, I don't know what, it, what art is. And may, maybe now I can consider myself an artist because I don't even consider myself a photographer. I don't, I don't really know anything about a camera. I don't, I don't, I'm not a student of the camera. I just know right. what I know to get the photos that I want to get. But when I recognized this and started considering myself an artist, I guess that energy got put out into the world, and that's when people really started responding Mm. and recognizing it. And I had this one uh, occurrence, June 26, 2009, that kind of changed my entire perspective of what my photography is capable of being to other people. I knew for a couple months now that it was helping me. Um, but I didn't. I didn't know that I could connect with other people yet right. on this on this level. And then there was this uh, this girl, Christiana. I met her at a mall, and never approached anybody at random on the streets before. You know, cold approach or anything like that. But I went up to her in the middle of the mall and told her, "I'm an artist. I take pictures of naked people." I'm wondering if you'd be interested. Here's my business card. Check out my website. Anything could have happened. She could have screamed, called mall security, <laughs> ran away, slapped me. Well, Anything. she was only 11 years old. Don't say that. <laughs> Can we edit that part out? <laughs> no, she was not 11. In fact, she was 23. I'm joking. She was 23. Ladies she was studying to be a doctor. What? And uh, I didn't know any of this. You know, when I approached her, of course. But she takes my business card, she walks away, and I watch her as she walks away. She puts it in her back pocket. I'm I'm thinking as long as she doesn't throw it away, you know, that was a a success. And I'm I'm visibly shaking when I'm talking to her and everything. But it seemed to go okay. The next day, she sends me an email. 
and says, I don't know um, what it is that you're doing. Or, uh, she says, I was doing laundry last night, completely forgot about meeting you, throwing my jeans in the wash, and your business card falls out. It was that close to just getting washed, and she'd never see it again. But the business card falls out. I got some time to kill while I'm doing laundry, so I check out your website. Just, I don't know what it is that you're doing, but I'm in tears as I write this email to you. Wow. Just, I need to be part of this. I, I need to do this. And she goes on, um, it's that second picture on my, on my website right there. So if you, go, if you go to Shane's website, the things I've seen, uh, dot com. And you go, you enter, there's a, a photograph. I'm just going to pull my mic out here. Uh, there are a series of photographs. You'll see the second one from the left, a woman in the tree. Uh, amazing shot. Well, yeah. They're all amazing shots. Jesus. Anyway, sorry, go so, ahead. So she sends me this profound email, and I'm just floored. Nobody's ever said anything like what she's saying to me. And... I said, all right, let's not get ahead of ourselves. I invite her down to my gallery. Let's talk about this. Let me tell you some stories. Let me tell you why I do what I do and see if this is right for you because no experience at all. So she comes down, and uh, within about 45 minutes, I, I ask her, is this something you want to do? And she says, yes. I said, all right, well, next week, if you'd be interested, 70 miles north of here is where I grew up. I'd love to take you up to this woods yeah. that... I always used to run around in as a kid, but I've never done any photos there, and I'd like to go up there and see what we can create. And she says yes. So it's not so the first. These are woods you grew up in. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, I thought she grew up in. Them. No, outside of where I grew up in Fond du Lac, Wisconsin, there's a place called Hobbs Woods, and we would always used to go around there and play capture the flag mm. and kick the can and whatnot in these woods. But I took her up there, and at one point. Um, I have her lying in this log and over the river, and I'm ruining a pair of shoes, running through the river, taking pictures of her. But she's, her poses are so natural, and it starts raining, and she doesn't complain. And a couple guys ride by in dirt bikes, and they're within like 10 feet of her, and she doesn't jump up and cover up or anything like that. She's just there. She, is, she just seems to get it. I'm connecting with her on this artistic level. And I'm... Finally, she gets dressed, and we're walking away from that spot, and I ask her, I said, Christiana, I need to know why this is happening. Why can I just approach somebody completely at random in the mall, and now here we are a couple weeks later, and we're just getting these great photos. She said, all right, well, I'm going to tell you something I've never told anybody else before other than my parents. She says, my entire life, well, since she was six years old, she was raised as a ballet dancer. And due to the competitiveness of ballet, for the last eight years, she's been battling bulimia. And she said, when I saw your photography and I see the way you depict the female form, I thought to myself, if I can find the courage to model for him, I will be able to look at those photos that he took of me and see myself as beautiful for the first time in my adult life. Right. And that, that floored me. That I, nobody had ever said anything like that to me before. And then the next photo that we took was that one that uh, you were just talking about on my website. And that night, June 26, 2009, I went home and logged on to my website and I removed all of the wedding photos 
that I had posts on there. I was photographing rock and roll bands, uh, My Morning Jackie, Kings of Leon bands that were just starting to uh, come around. I was in touch with them and going to their concerts and photographing them. Architecture, fashion, I was shooting fashion for a local Milwaukee magazine. Contacted them and said, I'm done, I can't do this anymore. I need to focus on these art nudes because it's doing something for me right. and if I can relate to people and connect with people and potentially help people on an individual basis like that, this deserves my undivided attention. And that's, that's where it all started. And from there, if people weren't knocking on my door then, for the first time ever, you know, I'm always scrambling to try and find other people to shoot with me. Now they're coming to me, and they're bringing their stories to me and their emotions, and I'm just putting them out there. I'm just taking the photos, and I wasn't thinking about... This was never my intention to tap into this emotional level. It just, it just happened, and I ran with it. You know, I wanted to ask you earlier, you were talking about when you were going through this difficult period after your, your divorce, which sounds like... If we weren't talking into microphones, I'd, I'd ask you more questions about that because that sounds like a really – I mean, you haven't said anything explicitly, but from the sound of your voice, I just get this feeling that, that that's a really special woman. And like the way she calls you and tells you, you know, there's something missing in your work, like that's not something your ex-wife – or you would do from Belarus? She was oh, calling you from Belarus? Belarus, yeah. It's it's yeah it's a long story it's a whole other podcast we probably shouldn't get into that too much. <laughs> well, that's what, I won't I won't. But what you said was uh, you know you're going through this this difficult period and you just were like filling your weekends with shooting you know going and finding these models and shooting mm-hmm. and arranging things and driving all over the place. Mm-hmm. You're not making any money from it. You're not you don't like have an established career. There's no I don't see what you're getting from it. Other than some sort of artistic itch being scratched. You said, I had to do it to stop from going crazy. But how does taking pictures of strangers keep you from going crazy? Well, it was everything that was bothering me. I I say the demons, uh, uh, everything that was going on in my head, I was able to express it. And isn't that what, you know... Why people make art to express? I, well, that's those. why artists make art. Yeah. That's not why most people make art, right? Yeah, yeah that's true. Because <laughs> it wasn't paying your bills; it was, right. you know, racking up more bills for mm-hmm. you. All that gas and wear and tear on your car, and the, yeah. you know, the equipment and all that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was fun too. I mean, was, yeah. you can't dismiss how how fun it was to just be constantly traveling, meeting different people all the time going to beautiful places and yeah. it just so happened that when we got to those places I take pictures of them nude. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but, great. But I still don't think I am not sure I answered um how I satisfied, how I satiated uh said everything that I wanted to say. Right, about in, in, the, in Midwest. the Midwest. Yeah. Um I had kind of exhausted the locations that I was going to. I never really cared to duplicate locations, go back to the same place. Uh, did you scout, or, or did the, the models have places in mind? Very rarely did they have some place in mind. Depends on how far I would drive to meet somebody, but... Um, like Newfoundland. Like, well... <laughs> Yeah, she had a few places in mind in Newfoundland. <laughs> but I great. guess there isn't there isn't anywhere that I won't go. 
I've always wanted someone to take a picture of me naked in Antarctica. <laughs> I'm the man. I'll do it. Yeah. But, but I, I just, I couldn't, I ran out of locations. And to some extent, I kind of did run out of people to shoot with. And I just wanted something new. I wanted to travel. Right. I've always wanted to travel. I just kept getting stuck in these dead ends and making excuses and everything. So everything it was just in line for me to take off and satisfy that part of me and maybe find myself somewhere on the road. And I could do so by continuing to do, I guess it's a hobby. You know, I, I, it is, yeah, I can see it as a hobby, but I can also see that the story you just told and, and I love how you remember the dates when all these things yeah, happen, by the some way. some reason, I remember all these dates. <laughs> are you like, are you into baseball? Are you like, you know, the ERA of every pitcher who's ever lived? Are you one of those guys? No, I'm not. Not quite. I am into baseball, but not a statistician. Okay. Yeah. People have different kinds of memories, you know. Like, I, I can remember, uh, I remember the lyrics to songs. I remember uh, the authors of books and the titles of books. Um, but sports shit, I can't remember anything. People say, like, remember that great, you know, when so-and-so made that catch in the Super Bowl last year? You can't. I, I have no idea who was in the Super Bowl last year. Right. Not right. a fucking clue. My life depends on it, I can't tell you. Oh, people always ask Probably me. the Patriots, you know? <laughs> people always ask me, how do you remember all this stuff? And I said, well, isn't that why people take pictures, to remember things? Well, but then you shouldn't have to remember them. You should, oh. you know, you took that thing. That's what I think is like now I've got my phone. I don't need to remember anything. It's yeah, on the sure. phone. Sure. And you can take your pictures. On I your wrote phone a book. Too. I don't need to know this stuff. I wrote it in a book. Don't ask me. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Um, but but what you were saying was uh, about this this woman and and how she was battling bulimia and you know that that. Uh, I'm I'm really inarticulate right now, but I feel like like you recognized after the fact something that was probably obvious to people who were watching you from outside, like maybe your ex-wife. That's why I mentioned her. Mm-hmm. That you are approaching this as an artist. That you're that it's something you know. It was expressed in what you said that I needed to take pictures to keep from going crazy. I, last night I watched this movie Meru. Have you heard of no. this? It's about these guys who climb this mountain in India at the head of the Ganges, and it's, like, the most dangerous, and nobody could get up. And they, like, climbed almost the whole thing, and they were, like, 500 feet from the top, and then they had to go back down because the storm was coming in, and they were out of food. And then, you know, they, they, one guy gets swept up in an avalanche, and the other guy smashes his head, and this, it's this whole crazy story, and they have to go back. And they like, and one guy in the movie says, or I think it's his wife actually who says, you know, I knew he was going to do it again. He has to climb these mountains or he'll go crazy. And it's like, okay, that's it. There's the obsessive thing you need to do to keep your shit together. And uh, I don't think I have that. I don't think I'm an artist in that sense because, you know, like Joe Rogan, he needs to work out or he'll lose his mind. My wife needs to be fit or she'll lose her shit. I can sit here and be a lazy fucking slob and, like, you know, check Twitter all day, and I don't lose my shit, or at least I haven't yet. And I'm not, I'm not proud of that, you know? I kind of sometimes wish that there were some discipline that I really needed to do to keep myself sane, because mm-hmm. then I think I'd probably be a much more productive person than I am. 
But um, what the fuck am I talking about? You, oh, you being an artist, right? They from outside, it's pretty obvious. Like this guy's driving around all over the place, making no money. Why? Not even like sleeping with these women. He's mm-hmm. he's just. It's not like a pickup technique. It's it's he's doing it with a pure heart. It's a fucking artist. There's no other explanation for it. Yeah, yeah. I guess. And also, I think the the. The therapeutic angle that you mentioned right from the beginning is really important because uh-huh. you're, you know, you. I can't imagine a gift more valuable to give anyone, but particularly a woman, than um, her own beauty. Yeah. Right. A, a vision of her own beauty, uh-huh. and because women are so judged in this society and so shamed and so. You know, just constantly being picked apart for you to be able to, you know, give a woman a photograph like these photographs I'm looking at right now. Um, that's an amazing thing, you know. And as she gets older and, you know, goes through changes and has kids and all these things are going to happen to her body and to and to, to look at this and say, that's me. That's, you know, mm-hmm. and no Photoshop, no bullshit. That's me. Yeah. That's a pretty beautiful thing. I yeah. Agree. Yeah, that's crazy. Um, so, okay, so you, you decided to blow the Midwest. You got in your car. You drove all over the place. You're heading across the south. I think that's where we left off. You were zigzagging through yeah, the south. Yeah, I was zigzagging across the south, making my way west. Oh, you got to Colorado. Yeah. Colorado, New Mexico. and Ultimately, I got to San Diego, went all the way up the coast to San Francisco. Then I came back to Wisconsin for three weeks. I cut across... Um, it's was, a good car, by the way. It is a good car. Shout out to, who is it? Hyundai Elantra. Hyundai. I do call it Frankenstein because it's made of more spare parts now than, <laughs> than original. But um, Then after a couple weeks in Wisconsin, uh, it was the day before my birthday, and I started making my way back west to Portland. Everybody had told me, Portland is the place you want to be. Uh, for years, I was listening to this. Uh, people in San Francisco and Seattle were telling me, now you want to come here, you want to go to Portland. Portland has everything we have, only cheaper. Well, uh, times have changed. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I got to Portland, uh, slept on a floor for four months, wasn't really motivated to find a job. So eventually, finally, I did run out of money. And I had to go back to Wisconsin, lived there for about a year or so, uh, worked at some law firms where my experience in law firms was applicable. People don't, wouldn't hire me out here because they say you don't have any Oregon court filing experience. Um, so I went back to Wisconsin, started working, saving up some more money. That's where I met my current girlfriend, and this was just over three years ago. We hit it off pretty famously uh, really quick, too. Uh, within a couple weeks of meeting, she was living with me in my studio apartment, and four or five months after we met, we moved into my car together. <laughs> the already too small car. The already too small car now has a roommate. <laughs> and we spent another two months living on the road, traveling. I took her all to all these different places that I'd been a year or so earlier, two years earlier, and eventually made our way back here to Portland. Wow. And I've been here for the last two and a half years. Man, if you don't kill each other two months in the car, you're you're pretty suited yeah, for one another. Go, yeah. That's mm-hmm. cool. Were you charging your rent? <laughs> Not for the car, no. But <laughs> for the backseat. Yeah. Oh, that's rough. Why didn't you like buy a van or something? Too much gas money. 
Really? Yeah. Jeez. That's rough, dude. I, yeah, maybe I'm just old. I couldn't do that. I could do a van, you know, but not... Or maybe even a pickup truck, like a Toyota pickup trucks, you know, nice mm-hmm. in the back with a bed and everything, little shelves. And yeah. Yeah. I kind of fantasize about, you know, some sort of mobile living situation. Although I don't know if it would be so glamorous or I'd just be a bum, you know. It's hard to say. <laughs> it's hard to distinguish sometimes. Um, so how long have you been in Portland? Two and a half years or so. Two and a half years. And what do you think? You going to stick it out here or heading somewhere else? I think we're going to stick it out here, continue to keep it home base as long as we can afford it. But yeah, the travel bug. As you say, it's changed. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Traveling hasn't ceased. I still want to do that. That's still my true nature, I guess. Mm. I definitely found found that out for sure when I was on the road. There's There's nothing better than that. But keep this home base and we're going to travel as frequently as we can we just applied last week for her first passport and we're renewing mine so uh, in four to six weeks who knows the world the world is our option but we'll stay here this will be home base for a long term have you traveled overseas 2002 was the only time i've ever been to europe Uh, went with a couple classmates and spent a week in northern northern Italy, one day in southern France, but that, that's it. Did you do any photo- photography over there? I brought my cameras, uh, took pictures, but nothing like what I'm doing now. You know, right. I hadn't discovered any of this yet. Do you sell photographs? If people are willing to buy them, I'll sell them. Um, <laughs> I guess, like, uh, like, well, I, I shouldn't even say that is a precondition. Of I shouldn't, selling I shouldn't them. even say I'm willing to sell them either. There's been times where I've turned people down. Yeah. I had an art show a few years ago in Madison, and I had all my stuff on display. This photographer, this this guy comes in and wants to buy one of my photos, and so well, why that one? You know, I'm just curious to know why you want to want to buy that one. And he could have said anything. He could have talked about the artistic merits of it or whatever. But he said, that's good jerk-off material. And I said, sorry, I'm not going to sell it to you. I'm not going to sell it to you. You could could have said anything, taken it away, and done whatever you want to do. But that's not how I see my photos, and I'm not going to take your money um, for that reason. What a fucked up thing to say. Yeah, I I, I couldn't believe it. But and also it's a weird. I, I mean, it it suggests a strange consciousness. Like the guy's buying an artistic black and white photograph mm-hmm. to jerk off to when he can like open his laptop and you know see I, absolutely anything he wants. Yeah, yeah I don't, get, I don't it. get it. It's weird when things like that when there's like an internal contradiction in something. Like people who go to really beautiful places in nature and leave garbage. Mm-hmm. Like I don't get. I don't get it. Like, how could you take the trouble to hike in? Like, obviously, you love this. Obviously, there's something here that you recognize as beautiful. Otherwise, you wouldn't be here, right? Right. And yet, you're willing to leave your fucking, you know, plastic water bottles there. Like, how? who is that person? How can that person exist? I don't get it. It's baffling. Baffling. I'm baffled. But that's the only time I've ever refused to sell anything to anybody the problem is I'm terrible at marketing myself. Yeah. I'd rather be out there taking the photos than you know, posting them anywhere, selling them 
taking them to galleries. I can't even do that. I'm having a hard time do, doing that, just getting gallery shows to sell them because I don't like talking about it. I don't like talking about myself <laughs> in that way. You know, yeah. Well, that's that. why you're here, That's man. why I'm here talking I'm talking about, about you, yeah. yeah. Um, all right, well, listen, is, are there any... Are there any uh, Stories. I mean, I've read so many of the stories, and and sometimes I read them and I think, oh, I have to ask Shane about that one. But of course, I can't think of any of them now. And you know, I don't do the research. I'm glad you talked about the 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 woman in the tree, though. That's yeah, that's an important one. Have you had any like? I know you've had a lot of like flighty, like crazy shit where you show up, you drive six hours, and then the woman doesn't show up, and she doesn't even, like, give you a call, or, yeah. you know, yeah. people f- flip out at the last minute. Um, have you had any, like, really disturbing situations, or, like, a woman takes her clothes off and she's covered with scars, or, you know, only has one leg, or did I mean... Yeah, I've, I've got those experiences, too. I... Yeah, I'm gonna have to save those for another time. But I, um, I don't mean it to be to make fun of anybody, but like where you're in a situation, and, and there's nothing funny about having one leg, of course, but um, or or having scars. But uh, from your perspective, it's an adventure because you're both of you are getting into something you don't know what you're getting into, really. Right. You know, you've maybe you've met someone on this website and you're sort of corresponding, but then she shows up and it's almost like a blind date in a way. In a way, yeah. Like she doesn't look anything like what she <laughs> her profile looks like or something like yeah, that. Yeah, I've, I've I've got some experiences like that. I guess they aren't really that profound of of stories, but yeah, where people will show up and they aren't what they appear to be in their photos. Maybe they, they're extra. 20, 25 pounds, which is fine, but a lot of times I decide where we're going to go based on the person who I think I'm going to be photographing. Like that picture of Christiane in the tree, she's only five foot three. Nobody else could have fit in that hole in that tree. If I would have gone to there, gone there with somebody who's six feet tall, that shot never would have been taken. Right. So it's there is some importance in that regard to know who I'm meeting with because there's We've got pre predetermined ideas of where we might be going right. to get shoots, so that can really throw the plan off. What um, was the shoot like? You were in New York. You were shooting in Times Square. Yeah. There was some weird stuff with cops. We, I met this girl maybe a week prior. Um, she was one of these people I met when I was living on the road, and um, there was a miscommunication somehow when we had... In prior to meeting, but when we met, within five minutes, we realized that I only photograph nudes and she has never modeled nude before. Somehow that escaped her. <laughs> my entire portfolio of only nudes, she, she didn't recognize that. So we ended up walking around Central Park. I'll try to keep this story somewhat short. But we were walking around Central Park talking for a couple hours that morning because I mean, we had nothing else to do at this point. And eventually, after those few hours, she says, I... Maybe I do want to give this a try. Maybe I want to model nude for you. So the next day, we went to Coney Island, and we're on the beach, and she's standing around at the edge of the beach, and she's like, I want to model, I want to get naked and get into the water. I said, I'm not sure you want to do that. And, you know, it's April in, on the East Coast. And she's like, oh, I want to do it. I want to do it. So I said, all right, I'll tell you what. Just 
take your shoes and socks off, step in the water and see if this is what you want to do. So she steps in, screams out loud, <laughs> screaming yeah. how cold it is. And I said, it's so cold, it's painful, right? She says, yeah. I said, you still want to do this? She says, yeah. Oh. So we ended up shooting in, in the water. And I thought, all right, she's committed. She's, she can definitely um, get into this. Yeah, she's tough. So a couple of days later, we hang out at her place. And it's around 2 o'clock, 3 o'clock in the morning. And we've been doing research on laws, nudity laws in New York, in Times Square, in New York City, and case studies and everything. And he said, yeah, we could do this. I didn't come all the way to New York. I didn't travel all, to, all the way to New York not to do this. Right. And so now we have this perfect opportunity. So we go down to uh, Times Square at around 3.30 in the morning. We take the subway down there. And it's completely empty except for a police officer standing on every corner of every intersection. <laughs> <laughs> so I go, up to the, I go up to the first police officer. Uh. And I got a couple photos to show him on my phone. I said, this is what I do. This is what we're going to do. This is where she's going to be. This is how long it's going to take, 30, 45 seconds at most. There's nobody around. He said, I don't have any problem with it. So they're looking for terrorists or something, I guess. Yeah, ideally, like yeah. Somebody with yeah. a bomb. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But um, she, or the, the officer says, do whatever you got to do. Just when I see you do it, I'm just going to turn the other way. All right, cool. So we get his permission. We go up to the next officer. Say the same thing. He tells us the same thing. It's fine with me. Third officer, fine with me. Fourth officer, happens to be a female officer. I don't even get my pitch out. And she says, if you do that, I will arrest you. I will arrest you. And so, all right, well, we can't shoot on this corner. Let's go to the next corner and see what we can find to do over there. So we go a block away. And I talked to the first officer, and he says, yep, everything's fine. I said, you know what, let's not ruin this. Let's just deal with the consequences when they happen. So we, um, we're sitting in the middle of the road on the sidewalk and everything. In Times Square, if you've ever been there, there's that uh, staircase. I think it's like a red staircase or something like that mm -hmm. that everybody sits on and is, provides this view. That's where we were. We were on, on that block in the center of Times Square. And we're, we're talking, all right, this is the pose I want, and this is the angle we're going to shoot at and everything. We have everything all figured out so that when the time comes, she can just undress and fall right into the pose, and we'll be as quick as we can possibly be. But there's a tourist there, the only other guy besides the two of us and police officers, the only other person there. He's got these big, fancy cameras, and he's taking pictures of everything. So we're kind of just waiting for him. We figure it'll be a minute or two, and he'll move on. 15, 20 minutes past, the guy's still there taking pictures. I said, all right, I don't care if he's there. She doesn't care if he's there. But we don't need him turning his cameras on her and doing whatever he might do with those photos that he captures. So I, I stand up to go approach him and ask him if he wouldn't mind just setting his camera down just for 30 seconds. And he, he can even help us. He can be a watch out for us if he wants, but we just need the, the peace of mind of knowing that he doesn't have his cameras in his hands. And as I get up to approach him, he's unscrewing his cameras, putting him back in the bag right when I stand up. I turn and look at Times Square, 
and there's no cars passing through, nothing, everything's perfect. I said, Anna, we need to do this right now. She didn't hesitate. Any nerves she might have had, they were gone. She didn't hesitate. She undresses, falls perfectly into the pose, 30, 45 seconds of snapping photos. I said, all right, we got the picture. As she's pushing herself up off the ground, a squad car pulls up to my left, and it's maybe 10, 10 feet away at most, two officers in the squad car. They look at us, they look at me, I look at her, she's frozen on the ground, naked, doesn't know what to do. She looks at the officers, looks back at me, I look at the officers, everybody's looking at each other, not knowing what to do. All of a sudden the light turns green and the officers drive away. And she gets up and gets dressed and she's shaking from nerves, shaking because it's like 45 degrees outside. And so I got my arm around her and we're walking away and then all of a sudden two guys that we didn't see before, they're walking down the sidewalk and they stop us and say, man, you guys got a lot of balls for doing that right in front of all these officers. <laughs> but nobody did anything. Yeah. You know? So and when you look at the photo, if you look really closely, if you blow it up, you can see behind a planter on the right-hand side, uh, there's an officer standing over there. He's the only other person right. in the photograph. Yeah. I don't know if it's still true, but when I lived in New York, I lived in New York in the 80s for a few years, and it was a rough time, you know. But even then, New York cops were different. They weren't looking for trouble. They had enough trouble, you know. They're not looking to accept that one you had. But generally, my feeling about New York cops was that they were reasonable people. Yeah. If they haven't seen something like a naked girl in Times Square before, then they haven't been a cop very long, I guess. Yeah. I love love this image. I'm, I'm looking at uh, Shane's website right now, the things I've seen. There's a, an image of a woman in the water with a white scarf. She looks like an angel. It's an amazing shot. Really beautiful. And the woman in the... Uh, I shouldn't talk about photographs on an audio thing here. <laughs> but uh, I'm just encouraging you people to check out thethingsivescene.com. It's, there's some really amazing, amazing imagery in here. Thank you. Um, well, listen, man, thank you for doing this. Are we missing anything? Have I, have I skipped anything important here? I'm sure I have, but I'm sure we both have. But. Well, it doesn't really matter. I mean, the main thing I wanted to accomplish with this is uh, just to, you know, bring your, your work to the attention of people and also to bring the story behind the work, because I think that's um, as important. It's a very important part of, of appreciating the images that you put together. Thank you. It's it's a real adventure. It's cool, and I like the way, I like the way the women are the stars. They're, you know, like you set it up, but it's up to her to, to take that last step. And mm-hmm. and and every story you tell is like she didn't hesitate. She dropped it. She got out there. She did it. You know, it's it's not only about the beauty of the women. It's the strength and the courage of the women as absolutely. well. Absolutely, absolutely. That's, yeah. that's the key behind all of it. Yeah, really nice. All right, thanks, Shane. Shane Gardner and The Things I've Seen. Check out that website, ladies and gentlemen. And any um, anyone who wants to be in your photographs, I guess they can contact you through the site? They can co- contact me through the site. And also, if you follow me on Instagram at Shane underscore William underscore Gardner, uh, you can, on, once a day, I post a photograph and tell and a the story. story. Yeah. And yeah. it's an abbreviated story. It's not the best place to be getting into all the details and everything, but you get an idea a lot of times, and someday I'll write that book with the full story <laughs> in it. Good, good. All right, thanks, Shane. I hope you enjoyed that conversation and appreciate your support for the podcast, especially those of you who do it through fundwhatyoulove.com 
where you can set it up to take a buck, five bucks, ten bucks, whatever you can afford, whatever you feel motivated to throw at the podcast every month. Uh, you don't have to think about it. It's an ongoing thing. You can cancel at any time, of course. That's fundwhatyoulove.com. That's run by Danny Osment, who also does the sound engineering for the show. You can find him at emeraldcitypro.com if you have any engineering, sound engineering needs. He's great. I vouch for him, of course. He's been doing the sound engineering for this podcast for over a year now, completely voluntarily. Uh, he's a cool guy. So if you have any business you want to throw his way, please do. Thanks to Basin and Range for the opening music. You can find them at basinandrangeband.com. Uh, there's a Reddit tangentially speaking discussion group. If you want to talk about episodes, throw a question at me, get a conversation started at Reddit. Just do a search for tangentially speaking, all one word. And, of course, thanks to Bennett at Shore Design T-Shirts, another guy who's been supporting this podcast from the very beginning when I had about 15 listeners. He was there. He's still there. And uh, I love him. Never met the guy, but I love him. And I sure as hell love his shirts. So you can get his shirts at ShoreDesignT-Shirts.com. And, of course, all the shirts that are at ChrisRyanPhD.com are made by Shore Design T-Shirts in Thailand and packaged and shipped to you by my mom, Julie. Uh, say hi to Julie if you order anything. She loves it when that happens. And of course, last but not least, thanks to Carsey Blanton for the song you're about to hear, Smoke Alarm, which reminds you to carpe fucking diem because you're going to die one day. You said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're going to die one day. For example, I could kiss you just because I want to. What's the difference if you turn away? I'm gonna die one day. Why do you waste your time thinking about your reputation? Trying to meet an expectation, wondering what they're gonna say. Doesn't ask for much A little music and a soft touch Why don't you let it out to play Your heart is in a birdcage Singing in your chest You wanna shut it up but give it a rest You're gonna die one day Why do we waste our time Thinking about a reputation
If we must go down, we'll go singing to the smoke alarms. We'll dance into the ground.